Welcome to the Explore the Circular Economy podcast by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. This is the Explore the Circular Economy podcast, where we discuss how to move away from a linear take-make-waste economy to one that designs out waste and pollution, keeps products and materials in use, and regenerates natural systems, a circular economy. My name is Rob, and I'm part of the learning team at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. In today's episode, Joss Blerio, the executive lead for institutions, governments and cities team at the foundation, is joined by Janis Potochnik, the co-chair of the International Resource Panel. In this episode, we reflect on a decade of circular economy policy at European level, and we discuss what's needed to reach scale, as well as the role of finance. To kick off the conversation, Joss asked Janis for a quick fact check before they dive into the main discussion. Yes, it's uh, great to join you. It was always a pleasure to speak to you. That's very kind. Thank you. Can, can we do a bit of a fact-checking before we go into the, the nuts sure. and bolts of the discussion? I've read somewhere, and that was a long time ago, I should have checked it before, that uh, when you were negotiating the accession of Slovenia, your country, to the European Union, you used to go to Brussels with always the same little briefcase. And I'm told that this briefcase is now in a museum in Slovenia. Is it true? Yes, it is true. Actually, uh, Slovenia joined to these uh, first six countries which uh, started negotiations in the last moment. We were former Yugoslav country, and that's why our start was not the best. And uh, if we wanted to change our image, we need to travel a lot and uh, meet a lot uh, our partners from European countries. I was actually doing presentations in, in practically each uh, of the capital of European Union, not only once, a few times. And with that, we have steadily created a kind of a trust which is in negotiations necessary. That's a really interesting segue into what I wanted to talk to you just as an opening for this conversation. You created in 2012 the European Resource Efficiency Platform to which we were kindly invited to participate. And that mechanism gave birth to the very first uh, Circular Economy Action Plan, or package as it was called, in 2014. And at the heart of the way you set things up was that idea of a multi-stakeholder process, so creating the dialogue mm -hmm. and that trust. Was it essential, in your view, to the success of the enterprise? And as a secondary question, looking back on eight years of European circular economy policy, what conclusions can you draw today? Yeah, I think it was essential, yes. Why it was essential? Uh, because uh, immediately uh, I had proposed the circular economy package very close to my mandate. And uh, the Juncker's commission, when it started its work, actually removed that package from the, uh, from the commission's agenda. And uh, due to the fact that we have prepared it, prepared it in a way that we included before a lot of stakeholders and that we created the ownership for that package, a lot of those stakeholders reacted very clearly and, uh, and loudly. And this was one of the reasons that uh, I, I would actually believe the, the most important reason that the circular economy arrived back on the agenda. But if I go to the second part of your question, which is actually continuation of that part. Uh, when I have proposed that package, it was more or less understood that it is another package coming from Environment Commissioner. And uh, 
like always, that any proposal which is coming from environment commissioner, it's uh, uh, pretty much in conflict with the economic interests. When it was later, also with the help of those stakeholders who were very actively advocating for circular economy, when it was later understood that this is as much environmental sustainability story as it is the European competitiveness story, then the real uh, the real success of the circular economy package uh, in the in the in the Commission started to uh, started again. So it was back on the agenda very quickly. And uh, some of the commissioners were very vocal in supporting it. Uh, Commissioner Katain and uh, Timmermans, for example. And it started to move further. In If we look at now back in just four years, five years, it's actually becoming the core driving force of sustainability and of competitiveness of European Union. If you look at the European Green Deal, it is very clear that European Green Deal is to a large extent based on the logic of the circular economy. If you are looking to the new circular economy uh, action plan, uh, I think there has been an important step done in the direction to introduce a product and sector approach. But what I am still missing, what I think it's still not yet been done, is that they would move uh, from that to the whole system thinking and whole system approach. If I just give you one example, for example, when they address uh, the circularity uh, approach in mobility, they are more or less talking about the batteries and ve- batteries and vehicles and not actually all of the mobility itself. So I think it has moved a long way, but uh, like always, uh, this is something which should be understood as an important part of overall social and economic transformation. And if we understand it in that way, then we know that the task is not easy. Yeah, that's really interesting, that uh, social human impact uh, notion that you, uh, that you elaborate on, on in a piece that you wrote for Circulate News. So it's uh, currently on our website and we'll share the link to that uh, long form article, really insightful about the Green Deal in the C19 recovery context. We'll share the link in the comments or in the description of this video. But would you say that we see hints that the circular economy is moving from a pure technicality about waste management, materials management, resource management, to something which is more uh, on the level of a project for society. So if we look at the Circular Economy Action Plan, it talks about the right to repair, the involvement of citizens in that logic, and, and it seems like it's becoming more than just a way to deal with stuff in the system, to put it bluntly. Uh. Certainly, I think that's absolutely correct. And uh, one, first of all, I think that circular economy should be understood as a kind of uh, as a kind of instrument for delivering something which uh, international resource panel, which I'm co-chairing, is actually very much advocating. That's decoupling of future well-being and economic growth from the resource use and environmental impacts. I think that is quite essential because if we simply not do that, the, the pure physics is telling us that we will hit the walls. But on the other hand, as mentioned before, and uh, like, like you have reiterated, I think it should be seen also as part of a bigger picture of this economic, uh, societal and cultural transformation, if you want, which is very much in line with our efforts also to deliver sustainable development goals. So 
I think that circular economy is actually offering to consumers, to citizens, to citizens, if you want to voters, the possibility to act responsibly. And I would like to underline that many are today wishing so, in particular the, the young generation. And at the same time, it's also offering the opportunity to still meet their needs in mobility, in housing, in food provision, as they've been used to meet them also in the past. Uh, and the second thing, which is important also for each one of us, is that circular economy is also offering uh, a kind of approach to competitiveness, which, of course, European Union is uh, always uh, putting in the center of our approach by not focusing on, for example, lowering wages or social standards of workers, but rather addressing an issue where Europe is terribly import dependent on various materials, on energy. We import more than half of the energy. According to Commission data, 75 to 200% of critical materials are practically imported to European Union. So addressing that, which is at the same time also the most important part of the cost of the business sector, it's much more more, um, friendly for any consumer, for any voter. And I think that via that, we are actually limiting the use of the cost of the natural resources also in the business sector, and we have a kind of double benefit, which I think should be convincing also for the broader society. And you touch on something which is really important, is the cost structure of the economy. At the moment, can we really believe that we'll get to circular economy at scale if the, the, the system is hardwired for linearity when it comes to cost and throughput and incentives? The, economic, the environmental impact and societal impact of economic activity is still not priced in, so the prices are still lying, for instance. Yeah. How do we get to elevate that discussion? Uh, does it need a, a global agreement? As you say, it should be an, an interesting fix because resources, if you tax them more, they're not going to go out in the street to protest, and there's an argument for that. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, I think the, the most uh, useful approach is if you look from something which was published uh, two years ago by, um, uh, by uh, United Nations, it's called Inclusive Wealth Index, where they have, uh, it's something which is like uh, GDP plus. So it's not looking only to productive capital, but it's looking also to labor capital and natural capital. And what you can find from that, that in the last two decades, productive capital, which is a kind of a synonym for GDP, has almost doubled per capita, that the labor capital per capita is almost standstill, so it has increased for 8% in that period, while the natural capital per capita in this period has actually fallen for 40%, which means that a lot of the GDP in those years was actually recorded on the basis of the depletion of natural capital. And this is clearly leading to the conclusion that the signals which you talked about, which we are sending to producers and consumers on the market, are such that production capital is actually overvalued and overrewarded, that human value uh, capital is undervalued and underrewarded. And in many cases, unfortunately, natural capital is not valued at all. So more or less, uh, we, we all agree in principle of the full costs. But at the same time, 
we need to take care also for the basic services, for the food provision, for the access to living places, mobility, that all that is affordable. And due to the fact that wealth distribution is far from fair, of course, social policies have to play an important role. And uh, as, you, as you said, it's social policy, it's about humans. They are more short-term orientated. Environmental policies are more about nature. They are more long-term orientated. And reconciling both, it's not easy. And in many, hands, in many cases, it's actually landing in a way that human, concrete, very short-term interests are prioritized. So indeed, human voice, it's loud and clear. We rule, we govern, we decide how we actually we have invented democracies, elections. And even when we disagree with those things, we can still raise the voice. We can go to the streets and protest. But nature has no voice and uh, to a large extent depends on, on our human understanding and our responsibility. So it protests by dying out. It disappears from the planet. And, and yes, the, the silent voice of nature in the recent uh, decades has been very loud and clear. Unfortunately, we are still, still not uh, hearing it uh, very clearly. So if, if I summarize, one can have a successful policy only by addressing the, the core drivers, by combining and ensuring that economic, social, and environmental policy are consistent, by introducing a kind of more long-term science-based policy by introducing something, uh, something in policy, which sometimes it's difficult, less hypocrisy. And yes, of course, governance, which you are mentioning, it's uh, an important part of that, an important part of the answer, and preferably on the global level, yes, because we are more interconnected and interdependent than ever. Yeah, exactly. And if you're going to make the economics work, uh, creating that on a regional, and I say regional in, ex in the extended sense of the term, level only could create a competitive disadvantage. This is why nobody's really moving. And yes. do, we, do we really think that short of a global agreement on that new way of valuing the resources and the incentives, there's going to be some movement around that notion of making the economics work, which clearly at the moment work for an extractive economy and not a regenerative one? It is one of, of quite major problems, as you are saying. But I think that European, Green, Europe, European Commission and also European countries and institutions with the European Green Deal and backing it have actually shown that uh, leadership in this case is important and leadership which is very much based on a, on a simple fact which Green Deal is delivering. That is that for the first time, it has been actually clearly stated in such level of political documents that uh, future economic well-being and economic development is not in contradiction with protecting environment, with using natural resources wisely. On the contrary, that it depends on that how wisely we will use natural resources and how well we will protect our environment. If we understand that, if this is clearly understood, then we understand that also the economic development, which we normally prioritize, is actually dependent on how we will uh, solve those uh, critical issues, which are linked with more responsible use. And as mentioned before, decoupling its core of that solution and 
circular economy is the best instrument which we know to deliver that in practice. So I think that that fully makes sense. It's clear that uh, it's not easy to get a global steps and agreement and that level playing field is something which is essential. That's why I think it would be very useful if we would see how the multilateralism could be used uh, for, for that purposes. One of the things which we are constantly mentioning also in the International Resource Panel is that it might be useful to even think of potentially introducing something like uh, a convention on sustainable resource management, which would actually connect all the dots, all the players, which would actually create level playing field around the board and which would actually teach uh, everybody around what we act, what we talk about when we talk about the circular economy, when we talk about the coupling, when we talk about responsible resource use. Yes, another question that arises, of course, is the the role of finance, and we've seen a lot of activity on that front. We've seen, for instance, that during the uh, COVID lockdown, the the funds that performed consistently better than the other ones had an ESG component, environmental, social governance component to them. There seems to be a massive wake up of the finance community towards the need to disclose climate risks and, and all of these things. Do you think it's the tipping point that a lot of people were waiting for? Mm -hmm. So the logic was there, some companies were acting, all we needed was a big push by the biggest driver that there is. Yeah. Certainly, it, it plays a very important role. So governments and financial institutions must play a kind of key de-risking role. Uh, one thing in financial institutions which we are seeing changing is that, of course, risk in finance institutions cannot be defined as a kind of a short rate of return on the money invested, but rather in the context of real risk management, which we face as a society and as a financial sector, being part of that society. So uh, looking beyond the short-term interests also in the financial sector is essential. Also for the stability and the very survival of the finance sector itself. On the other hand, what is also critical is that, that all public money is used for the, for the public interests and it's, it's uh, aligned with the needs of the transition we talk about. And we have, by the way, all committed with we, is a kind of European Green Deal aligned, if you win and uh, if you wish. And we have an excellent opportunity currently. It's unique opportunity. Why? Because we have on the table, due to the COVID recovery package, almost double regular European Union budget for the next few years. So if we use it wisely, really lots can be done. And, and as mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, I think that understanding European Green Deal and post-COVID recovery as two sides of the same coin, understanding that actually European Green Deal is providing a lot of the answers, which also post-COVID re recovery is requesting, it's the best way to understand how to, how to actually, uh, where, where to actually put that money. So, but, but to, to be clear, finance is, of course, an important part of the answer. But still, I think what is the most important are actually incentives which are sent to the markets. Uh, why? Because it's, it's difficult that we would foresee that 
with the market signals, which normally we deliver through prices, we would send producers and consumers in one direction, actually telling them, don't worry if you use a lot of resources, don't worry if you uh, destroy natural capital. Actually, it's costless. And uh, you will even have higher profits. But on the other hand, in the public institutions, also in financial institutions, we would try to, with, a, with the public policies, with corrective mechanisms, with regulation, with uh, proper investments, with proper use of public money, we would like to remedy or correct those mistakes which are basically done on the market. I think this, is, this will have hard time to work because it's actually leading to a very conflicting situation on the markets where a lot of lobbying is happening, where a lot of conflicting views are happening, and it's actually creating also a lot of bad will. So I think aligning of all the in aligning of incentives on the markets with all the rest of the policies and sending producers and consumers in the same direction is pretty much essential. Yeah, and that echoes a question that just popped up on my screen, a question from Ryan, who's asking, can policymakers make it work in a context where many companies are bigger than the countries themselves? <laughs> yeah, but many companies which are bigger than the, that the countries themselves are actually more strategically thinking than than the governments themselves because companies which are quite big are also quite aware that uh, uh, we are when it comes to the use of natural resources coming to the end of the rope and uh, that if they do not really accommodate this sustainability transition they will have real problems to stay on the market what is their problem? What is actually the major problem of the companies? They are very well aware where and how they would need to look in a decade or so. But unfortunately, they are also very well aware what is their situation today. So how to walk that walk in which they would need to stay uh, competitive, profitable, in which they would be able to uh, give positive answers to their shareholders, that's uh, the problem which, of course, uh, they have to face. And in that walk, they basically need the public support and governments to help them. So I, I firmly believe that uh, you cannot do it only through bottom-up or through top-down. The most important thing is to understand that the change to the sustainable economy in society is unavoidable. And we should stop talking about if, what, but rather how we will do it. Because that's the task which is currently on our table. Being a citizen, being a public policymaker, or being a businessman. That's interesting because it goes back to what you were saying earlier. When the future of the first circular economy action plan was in jeopardy or, or in question, you mentioned a lot of stakeholders stepping up. Actually, it's important to note that most of these stakeholders were actually private sector companies saying, we're investing in this. Indeed. This is an important point that we don't make enough, I think. It's an important point, and uh, you are right. And uh, I think in whatever policy you are preparing, it's really important that you are preparing it in a way that you create the ownership, that people who will actually face the consequences do understand 
that even if some of the those things at the first sight look against their interest, they are very much designed to help them because you have to look further ahead, see what are the major challenges which we are facing and understand that by putting your head under the sand, you will not avoid that. So I think it's essential that you work hand in hand with the people uh, who are in the first line concerned with what will happen and design the answers in the way that they are good for them and that the private interests are aligned also with the public interests. Because at the end of the day, that's the essential thing. You could also say uh, and look at it a bit differently and say, well, yes, that's very nice, but you're always going to rely on a small number of progressive companies. They're always going to be the same and an aggregate number of them is never going to be enough to tip the whole system. How do you address the ones that do keep their hands in the sand or that worse, try to fight against progress? Uh, you know, the, this is, that is sometimes uh, the question which I see uh, that people are misunderstanding. We can do a lot of pilots. We can do a lot of funding programs. We can do a lot of the things. But of course, if the fundamental incentives sent to the market will be still sending those companies you are mentioning in the direction when destroying natural capital would actually reward them by giving them more profits, of course we will have the, the resistance. Of course. What else? So I will always underline that we have to change the essential signals. So currently, the situation as it is, when we talk, we call them environmental externalities, but they are connected as much to health as, as to the environment. But if uh, the, the, I have heard many times you cannot introduce that and that policy because it's additional cost for industry or for business. Those costs are existing, but we don't record them. We deny them. They are not paid by producers and consumers today on the market, but they are rather paid by either health system today or which is even more uh, suitable by the future generations because future generations today cannot complain. And that's why we are depleting natural capital. We are in a way privatizing the profits and socializing the costs and everything that goes back to the signals which you are sending to the market. I'll take another question, uh, one from Scarlett. In your experience, Yanis, how much is the circular economy still predominantly an idea being explored by Europe only, and how different is it in other parts of the world? Circular, uh, you know, different continents or different countries are calling actually the same efforts sometimes in a bit different way. Maybe they are not calling it circular economy, Maybe they are calling it free hours or, I don't know, uh, the uh, resource efficiency or whatever. But this is becoming more and more acknowledged, at least in the business sector, that, that, that acting responsibly in the area of resource management actually makes whole economic sense. So I can easily say that, for example, in China, the term of, of uh, I think it's, um, it's uh, environmental civilization or something like that, 
and the term of circular economies it's very much present but like in all economies the the core problem is that you agree with the concepts but how you then implement it in reality and also when you agree with the concept how actually you understand the concept we started our debate yours by saying everything started with waste management then we moved from waste management to product management to sectors management we are still not yet in system change management but if you understand that this should be understood that one has to address, address the core drivers and pressures and that one has to address it in the system way then of course you can understand also that the circular economy is quite holistic concept and that in the first place you have to look how to avoid the use of certain kind of natural resources in production and consumption consumption how to keep the value of those you have already used in the production and consumption cycle and that actually recycling with which we started is the worst of the good because when you recycle of course uh, certain resources have already been used i'm not saying that is bad not at all i think it's uh, very useful but still there are other things and other important issues like design of the product like business models which could play a very important and crucial role Janus provided reflections on almost 10 years of circular economy policy drawing upon the relevance of the European Circular Economy Action Plan and the European Green Deal. We also heard how the idea of GDP+ could provide a more inclusive world index leading to successful policies which have both the public and private interests aligned. Janus also mentioned that to decouple from material and resource consumption is crucial and that the circular economy is the best instrument we have to deliver that. That's all for this episode of the Explore the Circular Economy podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, share and comment wherever you are listening to this podcast and we look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks for listening to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation's Explore the Circular Economy podcast. Don't forget to share, rate and subscribe.